Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Second Kings chapter 4. We did the first few verses last week, so we're actually going to start up at verse 8. Elijah's out ministering to individuals, so the northern kingdom has fallen into the sins of Jeroboam, making up their own version of Judaism. God doesn't take kindly to that. And we saw the idea of pouring out oil last week, and now we get to kind of see an image of hospitality going into a whole set of miracles. All of this is foreshadowing the the same miracles that Christ will do. He'll just do them on a bigger scale. So we have kind of these Old Testament documentations of these kinds of miracles. Verse 8. Now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. So the word notable there implies that she's actually a person of wealth. Um, it's arguably she has um, comes from a family of wealth or, or a notable family. So when the elders would gather, there would be kind of the head of the male head of household that would be part of her group that would be at that meeting. So that notableness is kind of a, a significant word. In other words, she had means and resources. So you see somebody that's going to just bless the prophet by being hosp- hospitable. They have a house, they're able to host, so they use that house as a tool for ministry. So every time Elisha comes walking around, you get the sense that like the judges or the prophets, um, he's just making these little tours or little circuits from town to town to town and just blessing people and judging and taking care of things. Um, So you got this image of hospitality. Offering a meal to somebody is kind of level one hospitality. And so this habit of just every time they're in town, she has them over for a meal. Um, And frankly, this is one of the things I like about you all. Like, as a, as a group of believers, like, we've all kind of, for the most part, those of us that have been here for a while, we've eaten at each other's houses and been to places. So when we do our summer tour, we practice hospitality. I just think that's it's one of the things I appreciate about you all. Um, but it's a blessing that this woman gives to Elisha. Then verse 9, she said to her husband, Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God, who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand so it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. So now we get level two hospitality, having a guest room. And so, and again, this is one of the beautiful parts about the body of Christ is that different people serve in different ways. And for some people, their heart is just like, I want to have a place for people to stay when they're in town. I want to feed them meals. And I want to have a, at this point, she goes to her husband. And the husband's kind of an invisible character here. But obviously, he gives like, yeah, that'd be great. Make a little house for him. So they built a little tent, a little campsite on top of the roof. Verse 11, and then it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. He goes to bed there. And then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. And when he called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say, 
say now to her, look, you have been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or a commander to the army? Um, in other words, like Elisha's blessed by the food and by the place to stay. And he basically says, how can I help you? And so it's an odd thing, first of all, and I don't know what to make of this. I'll ask you all, but I thought about it all week and I could get nothing. He tells Gehazi, his servant, so this is a way to introduce this new character, Gehazi, his, the servant of Elijah. Uh, we're going to see that Gehazi is, turns out to have leprosy and get kind of cursed. So Gehazi's not a very good servant in some ways. But it's interesting that he has Gehazi call the woman, and then when the woman gets there, she stands before him, and she said to him, say now, look to her. He has Gehazi talk on his behalf. And I don't, this is just like really weird social skills. So Elijah doesn't talk directly to the woman. He talks to his servant to talk. Tell this, tell the woman this. And you get the sense that, you know, he's staying on her roof. He could just go down and talk to her. So there's something about how these prophets operated that was a, just a step distant from some people. And I don't really know what to do with that. It could just be that Elijah's asking Gehazi to do some of the work for him and being part of the ministry and just hey, we just want to bless her back. And maybe he's trying to show Gehazi that we don't just take from people, we bless people. And I'll say that because by the end of tonight, you'll see this is Gehazi's issue. This is the stone in his heart, is that generosity is a problem for him. But we start with Gehazi hearing Elisha try to teach him to not be a taker. Like, I don't want to just take your food and stay in your house. I want to give something back to you. What can I give back and how can I bless you? When a prophet of God asks that, that's a pretty, like, open door. Like, you could ask for a lot of things. And then you see in 13, like, do you want me to speak on behalf of the king? For a noble, notable family to have a good relationship with the king, that can be really profitable. It can be a good thing. Commander of the army, I mean, that might get favorable placement for some of their sons where they're out of harm's way. So these are pretty big offers. Um, she asks for nothing, right? This is, again, hospitality. She answered, I dwell amongst my own people. So he said, what then is there to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. She's without a son. So Gehazi's kind of like, maybe Elisha's trying to teach Gehazi to look for need. And I think we do this in the church all the time. When we meet each other, it's like, what can we do to help each other? What ways can I bless you? What's God given me that I can give to you? So... Gehazi notices that this would be a stigma in Jewish culture. A woman with no son never had a shot at giving birth to the Messiah. And that's the whole disposition of the Jewish people is they're looking for that Messiah. And so that idea that the Messiah would come from a Jewish woman, they all wanted to kind of get a turn at that. Culturally speaking, a woman without kids was seen as, as cursed. So this is something where then she has to deal with that stigma. Gehazi notices that, and then he says, let's deal with that right there. So in verse 15, so he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And then he said, this time he talks right to her, about this time next year you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, don't lie to your maidservant. Don't do that. Not nice. But the woman conceived, bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. So she provided material things. He gives her a spiritual blessing. And I, I honestly think that's the trade-off sometimes when we're dealing with the people of God. We might give things like candy-coated pretzels, but the return on that investment is a spiritual blessing. And it's, it's a neat way to do that. And if you haven't tried the pretzels, folks, there is a material blessing in those pretzels. So 
the idea of having a bigger family for this woman and her husband being old, that's kind of like a, a retirement plan because a lot of times parents were had to depend on their younger children to provide for them in their old age. Uh, they didn't have nursing homes during this era, era, so honoring your parents meant taking care of them in their old age in large part. Verse 18, and the child grew, and now it happened one day that they, he went out to his father, to the reapers, and he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to his servant, carry him to his mother, and when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees until noon, and then he died. This is horrible, horrible tragedy, absolutely heartbreaking. Sounds like medically this was a stroke or a sunstroke or an aneurysm that happened, some sort of blood clot in the head. Uh, either way, you get the sense that he was a little boy out chasing after his dad in the field, and I'll help, I'll help with the harvest, dad. And it's just too much, and the, the heat was too much, and he passes out. She went up to him and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door upon him and went out. This is an interesting turn. This is not what you do with a dead body in any Jewish culture or tradition. And we start to see the faith of this woman. By taking him up and putting him on Elisha's bed, you're putting a dead body in someone's bed. That makes that whole room unpure, unclean. So she's assuming at some level that Elisha's going to do something about this. It's a, a really indirect act of faith. Um, and then she called to her husband and said, please send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I might run to the man of God and come back. And her faith isn't in Elisha because she, the name's not even used. Her faith is in God. She wants to run to the man of God. And I, I think that generalizes this story in a really cool way. She knows where to go for help. So he said, well, why are, why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, it is well. It's all good. Interesting, like, sense of, like, they had some really weird superstitions. Like, why would you need to go to a prophet on a new moon? Or maybe you don't bother him until it's Sabbath. Like, really weird beliefs. And she's like, nope, I'm going to go to him right now. Now is when I have the need. I'm not going to wait on that. So the same reason she's excited to show hospitality is the reason she has belief in tragedy. And faith holds in either context, either in blessing or in tragedy and in hardships. And she knows and has that, that right disposition that it is well. And that no matter where I'm at, it's all good. It's all good. God's going to take care of it. In the, one of the worst moments of her life, she gets very little help from her husband. Again, he's kind of a non-character here. Like, what's he doing that he's not running out to get the help? And the Bible highlights her faith her initiative, and her respect for the prophet, not necessarily the husband's, which I think is a really cool like take on the fact that God actually sees the faith of individuals even in a marriage context. Then she saddled the donkey. She said to her servant, drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, look, the Shunammite woman. Please run now to meet her and say to her, it is, is it well with you? It's interesting that that's the question that she left her husband saying it is well. And then Elisha just knows to say, is it well with you? And so Elisha tends to know things. And we're going to notice the shock he has right now is he doesn't know everything about this woman. Like God hasn't revealed it to him. But for some reason, I, th I think the spirit leads to ask that question. Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? That is it well question, just like something about wellness 
that he needs to ask about and find out about. And she answered, it is well. So she tells Gehazi the same thing as she told her husband. But it's clear here that she's saving her request for Elisha, not Gehazi. The woman sees something in Elisha that she doesn't see in Gehazi. And this becomes important as we get into the next story. Now when she came to the man of God, Elisha at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me, but has not told me. So the Lord hasn't told me what's wrong with her, but I can see there's something upsetting her right now. It's interesting that Gehazi says, is it well with you? Is it well with you? Hey, everything's fine. You ever do that? You come into like a fellowship of believers and everybody's like, how are you doing? How are things going? And you're like, oh, it's all good. And you say that not in deception or to be fake or to be false, but you say it because they don't really care how's, how it's going. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes you just tell people what they want to hear because you don't want to get into it with them or you don't think they really want to get into it with you. But with a person of God, with Elisha, she's just like, I got to give you everything. I got to give you my distress. And the part of that is the relationship she had with Elijah goes way back. When there's a relationship, people share their troubles. When there's no relationship, and it's surfacy, like with Gehazi, it's like, yeah, everything's fine. Get me to the guy who I need to get to. I have to get to my friend when I'm in trouble. So Elisha incidentally notes that God reveals things and hides things. So as a prophet, there's things God tells Elisha and gives him a word of knowledge. It's what we call that. That's kind of our language for that. So he's like, the Lord has hidden it from me. I don't have a word of knowledge on this woman, so I don't know what's going on. Um, how cool <laughs> that a leader of God, a prophet of God, in the recorded record of God, says basically, I don't know. I love this because I don't know a ton of stuff. And so people are like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I love Elisha because there's no pretense with this guy. He's just humble. And that somebody's coming and they got need, and he's like, I don't know what's wrong. I have no idea what to do or what to say in this situation. In most religious texts, the people that are the most holy have all the answers, right? The gurus, the, the rabbis, the, the experts, the imams, they have all the answers. But in the Bible, we see these most holy people having sometimes the least answers for people. I, and I, I find that like a huge weight off my shoulders. I don't have to know all the answers. I just have to point people to Jesus which seems super trite, but in this case, he's just like, I don't know what's wrong, and, and, and he doesn't have to have a pretense. He also doesn't have pretenses when he's talking to the king. He just speaks simply to the king and says what God's told him to say. So it doesn't matter who Elijah's talking to. He's the same with everybody. Verse 28. So she said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, don't deceive me? Like, uh-oh, something's wrong with the son. And then he said to Gehazi, Get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, don't greet them. And if anyone greets you, don't answer them. But lay my staff on the face of the child. So we've seen this Elisha giving Gehazi a chance to be part of the ministry. We've seen it a couple times now. And Gehazi's being invited to be part of things and he doesn't seem to get the job done. So the widow gathers this vessel. The soldiers dig ditches. Jerichoans go and get salt for Elisha to put in the river. If God's with Elijah, then these things will happen. And at this point, Elijah's inviting Gehazi to be part of things, and it's not going to click. And the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I won't leave you. 
Like the mom knows where the relationship is. She doesn't go with Gehazi to see her child be raised. Or She's assuming resurrection here, right? She's assuming there's going to be a healing of some sort, but she doesn't go with Gehazi to see the healing. So it's interesting that she has some insights here. So he arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to meet him, and he told him, saying, the child is not awakened. Gehazi gives up. He's doing what he's being told to do by the prophet. The prophet speaks for God, so that's the word of God, saying, go do this thing. He goes to do it and tries once and just gives up. Well, I guess it wasn't there. That must not be the Lord. So it's an interesting thing that the woman's faith is far stronger than the servant of the prophet's faith. The one who's supposed to be learning how to be righteous and how to do God's work isn't getting it. Verse 32, when Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. So the two of them there is going to be Elijah and the dead son. So they're just in the room on their own. There's, it's interesting how sometimes with miracles, there's a privacy kind of element to it. We saw with the, the vats of oil last week that they closed the door and that this isn't really anybody's business but the people that are involved. So what we hear next is coming because Elijah would have had the scribes write this down. Elijah's telling this story. And he went up to lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes. I can't, trying to picture how that happens. And his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself out on the child. And the flesh of the child became warm. Super weird image. You have to kind of like picture this for a second. Boy, a younger boy, and you got this grown man coming in, and literally putting forehead to forehead. I'm thinking the eyeballs maybe were a little further out than my German eyeballs are. I don't know. But eye to eye, face to face, mouth to mouth, right? So the noses are getting smashed pretty good. Like, how do you get, I don't know. And then the stretching out, the word there implies that the hands are outstretched. So they're in kind of that, almost like a shape of the cross, And you get this intimacy of a connection between the man of God and death itself. Face to face, mouth to mouth, hand to hand, attached to one another. You get these foreshadowings, these images that are here. And just weirdness that they're laying in that kind of shape. I totally lost my place. What verse am I on? 35. Thank you very much. So Elisha is doing the same thing that he saw Elijah doing back in 1 Kings 17. So Elisha's learned from his mentor, and he's doing things the same way on faith. And it's interesting that Gehazi's been introduced here because we don't see Gehazi figuring out how to copy Elijah. Like there's, there's a translation thing. And it's not that Elijah's not give, or Elisha is giving him chances, But the laying on the child is a very intimate position. Ritually speaking, he's coming in touch with death, making himself impure. But in this particular case, Elisha is not considered impure. Even though Levitical law says you touch a dead thing, you're dead. You're you're bringing death and making yourself ceremonially unclean. But that's not what happens here. Instead of Elisha getting ceremonially unclean, the dead boy comes back to life. And this is significant because theologically it sets up a premise that when God wants to switch the direction, he can. 
And that instead of death making the living impure, the living, through the power of God, make the dead come alive. It can go two directions. And to me, this is phenomenal because we trust in this. This is part of where we put our faith, is that God can conquer death. And that's good news for us older folks where we see death coming a little closer. Like, death isn't far away. So to know that God can reverse that even after our physical body goes, that's exciting. And really, this is a really interesting image of the spirit of God and the spirit of humanity taking the same physical space, mouth to mouth, the same breath, eye to eye, seeing it the same way, hand to hand. Elisha isn't scared to go face to face with death. I wouldn't want to put my mouth on a dead person's mouth. But there's no fear with with Elijah in part because God's told him to go do it. And I'm sure he didn't like doing it. Like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any way you can take this cup from me, please. He didn't want to go face to face with death, stretched arms out, hands nailed to a cross. But Elisha is doing this in part because God says to it, it says the body warmed in the end of verse 34. The warming of the flesh means the blood is now flowing. And so you have this idea of Again, this is foreshadowing, like suddenly the blood is flowing again. Uh, and, and with Jesus, it's the blood of him dying on a cross. With this boy, it's the blood of life coming back into his body. Elisha knows three things to give him the power to do this. He knows God has the power. He knows that he's seen it before with Elijah. So he's watched it happen in the past. And three, he knows that God is willing this to happen. And I honestly think with any hardship or fear we might have, those three things can get us past that. God can and he does have the power to do something about it. He has seen or we trust that God has done something about this with other people in the past. And then three, there is a God's will is for the best in our life. God wants the things that are good for us, not the things that are evil. And sometimes that comes through through trial, but to know that God's will for our life is good and not evil. And those are three things to have faith in. Verse 35. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. And then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. So the first time the body gets warm, but it doesn't move. Where Gehazi gives up and says, didn't work. Elijah's like, he knows this is God's will. He knows God sent him here. So the walking back and forth, the strong implication there is that he's praying. And then he goes back to the body, went up and stretched himself out on him. So the same thing as he did before, which means that he's mouth to mouth with a kid who sneezes. Think about this. Hachoo right in your mouth. And not just once, but seven times. You... Seven times is the number of divine perfection. This is a divinely perfect sneeze happening. Our instinct says this is disgusting, but that's the same result we should have anytime humans come in, into contact with death. It is repulsive, and it is disgusting, and it is gross. And this image, and then it says the child's eyes opened. If he did it the same way as last time, his eyes are on his eyes, so he would feel the kid's eyes open on his own eyelids. Again, ooh, this is a little too COVID close, right? There's no six-foot rule here, but there's a persistence in prayer lesson to be had here. Like, he doesn't give up just because it didn't work the first time. And when we go through hardships, we don't give up just because it's not feeling like it's working. We know God's will. We know God's will is for good, so we're persistent in our prayers. 
There's nothing in here that says we need to get on people's mouths and eyeballs. Like, that's not the point here. The point is an image of humanity and death being in the same space and life winning out and purifying the unclean. So you definitely have these images here. The divinely perfect version of a miracle is that new life comes into this little boy. That's the plan of God. That's the divine plan for all of humanity is life, not death. And I don't know why the sneezing, but there's definitely an idea there. So let me sum this story up in language that sounds a little like Jesus. We have a miracle baby promised to the woman, not necessarily to the man. The boy's killed. He's still dead after he's, people thought they brought him up to the room, laid him down. How many days did it take for Elisha to get to the boy? I, I, that's one of my questions for heaven. I think it took about three days, but the Bible doesn't say that. So you got a miracle baby that dies. They're still dead after the not man of God tries to raise them. But then when the man of God shows up, they are raised. And the first effort was with a piece of wood. And the second effort was with life itself. So Jesus dies on a cross with a piece of wood, and then the real spirit of God shows up, and he's raised three days later. The cross has no power in the situation. So you got these images coming, and they're throughout the Old Testament, but they're strong in the book of Elijah. The power of the image is with Elijah. So verse 36, And he called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite woman. She's been called a few times now. So he called to her, and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground, and she picked up her son and went out. It's really important to see the faith of the Shunammite woman. She's commanded to go pick up her son, but she doesn't skip the idea that she needs to give some thanks to God for what's happened here. And she gives thanks because she appreciates the new life. She appreciates that gift that's been given. The moral of the story, use sunscreen. Don't go out in the hot fields and that sort of thing. So we get another image. So it just follows up with these awesome images that are all reflective of the ministry of Christ. And Elijah returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. And now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophet. So the people of God, this remnant that still follow God, they're getting together, they're having a feast. The servant here, by implication, is Gehazi, but it doesn't say Gehazi, it's just a servant. Get the big pot, let's get out the, let's kick out the pot, let's have a feast. So one went out into the fields to gather herbs, and they found a wild vine. And they gathered it from a lapful of wild gourds, and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. People that really love the botany of the Middle East, there's actually a particular plant that they think this is. And uh, then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew that they cried out and said, Man of God, there's death in the pot. Um, If you want to put a Bible verse on your license plate or tattoo it to your arm, this is a good one to throw there. And they could not eat it. So he said, bring some flour. And he put it into the pot and he said, serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. Really weird story, again. And some of these stories, I honestly think, were, were left as mysteries for a thousand years before Jesus showed up. 
And then Jesus shows up, and this is what Paul gets so excited going into new towns and teaching in the synagogues. And I think they're going back through the Old Testament in the book of Acts, and they're showing people like, oh, this is what this whole thing was about. You think there's death in the pot. All of humanity has gotten the wild vine thrown into it. All of humanity is poisoned by death itself. And we all have to eat from that pot, right? We're doomed into this thing of sin. Seems like an odd story, but one. let's just start with the easy thing. This is a story about purification. That what we think is impure and dirty, God can make clean again. What we thought was dead, God can bring to life. That It can all go in a reverse order. So we always say to people like, well, if there's any sin in your life, you're a sinner, right? This is what you say to non-sinners sometimes. You can't be mostly good and a little bit sinful. Just like you can't have a glass of water with a little bit of arsenic, but it's still okay. Like the arsenic makes it bad. There's death in the pot. And the, tr- the truth of all humanity is that. So in context, we had the miracle of the oil, that Holy Spirit filling all these vessels. You got the hospitality. You got this miracle child who dies and he's raised again by God's power. And now you've got a pot of stool that has poisoned God's people and they get purified by God's servant. That God's, those still following God still have this problem of death. But the son is raised to life again, and the very next story is how the people of God get a new chance at life. They get a new source of food. So the new pot of stew that was poisoned by all... Take note, by the way, it's one of God's servants that was supposed to be taking care of God's people that poisoned the pot. And a lot of people associate this with what happened with Judaistic traditions. The very people that were supposed to be keeping this ready for Jesus, when Jesus showed up, they poisoned the pot. They missed the whole thing. And it was God's servants that threw the bad stuff in there. And so you have this idea. Then you get this flour. Flour, of course, has to do with bread. Food is nourishment. God can prepare a system that humans poison, but God still can do something about that to purify the system. And you think of communion where Christ held up the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Crack. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus did on the cross purified the pot. And that bread that's broken, this flour that gets thrown in there, there's no leaven in the flour, right? So that image stays constant. We've seen again and again and again, and I think this is part of what I'm getting on this tour through the Old Testament as we try to get through the whole thing. God keeps setting up systems and gives humanity the best possible chance, and humanity itself tends to screw it up. So we've had the the time of Israel, the nation. We've had the period of the judges. They didn't want judges. They wanted a king. Okay, here's a great example of a king in King David. That gets screwed up. Then here's some prophets. We'll bring some prophets. Well, by the end of the... Old Testament, they're going to be killing prophets, right? They're going to be taking them out. And then we get the church, and God says, let me give you a church, and I'm just going to talk directly to my people. But over the last 2,000 years, the church itself is going to get corrupted, not by people outside the church, but by people bringing wild vines into it. And then Jesus is going to come again, and he's going to say, you know what? You've tried everything you can do on your own power. I'm going to purify the pot one more time, and I'm going to rule directly over my people. And so that's what we look for with Jesus' second coming, when he's going to come and he's going to reign on earth as it is in heaven. So the church is really the first one that has multiplied well beyond the other efforts. Each of these efforts gets a little closer to how Jesus or what God had planned from the very beginning. So the pot's 
dirty, and then it gets purified. Verse 42, Then a man came from Baal, Shalisha, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread, and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, Give it to the people that they might eat. Uh, <clears throat> really, he's, he should be going to Jerusalem with these gifts, but the, the, like, the northern kingdom is well past the proper administration of these things. So really what he's doing is kind of what the, what the woman did with hospitality. He's just saying, you know what, I'm going to come to the people that still serve Yahweh, and I'm just going to give this as a blessing. It's a modest blessing. 20 loaves of bread, if that's your first fruits, that's like a tenth is what's ordered there. So this guy's only really making 200 loaves of bread for the year, right? This is not a rich person bringing these gifts, right? It's just some guy from some town. Uh, Baal is obviously, the towns are being named after Baal at this point, not Beth which or, or Yah or anything like that. And so he's some guy from some town bringing a very modest gift. Barley bread is seen as the cheapest of the grains. It's, it's really a poor person's bread. It still is. Newly ripened grain from the knapsack. So here's some future grains that you can have. Knapsack is not a full vat. It would literally be a backpack instead of like a proper vat or urn or hen of something. So it's kind of a, this is a modest tithe. And he said, give it to the people that they might eat. So when he says the people, he's talking about the sons of the prophet, this community of people that still follow God. But his servant said, what? Shall I set this before a hundred men? And again he said, Give it to the people that they might eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left over. So he said it before them, and they ate and they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Really significant image, right? A modest little gift that this is all I have, but God multiplies it and uses it to feed a hundred people. So it's an obvious precursor or foreshadowing of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. There's no fish involved here. We're just dealing with the bread, right? So nobody's pulling fish out of their pockets and waving them around. He brings the bread and he feeds the 5,000 and there happens to be some left over and that's the most important part. When God provides, there's more than enough to go around. We, in the kingdom of God, when it comes to the spiritual blessings God wants to share around his people, it's not like there's a lack of it. It's not like we're sparse on joy or we're, we're just eking out a little bit of peace or happiness. When God pours it out, he pours it out in abundance. There's plenty of it. And, and again, the very last sentence, according to the word of the Lord, this is what God wants. If you look at the intro to the Gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So when it says, according to the word of the Lord, we have a really a, a very direct reference to Jesus who says, gather up what you have and feed the people. And then there's 12 baskets left over. The summary here, God pours out oil with the widow, raises the son from the dead, purifies the stew, and now feeds the multitude. You see the connection to Jesus' ministry? And the spirit of God is just poured out on the people in abundance. The meager offerings of the godly is exactly what God's looking for, and that is used according to the word of God. This is what God wants. And the idea that, is that really what Jesus is going to do? And God's giving us a great foreshadowing here. Yep, this is God's will. It was God's will well before Jesus. When Jesus shows up, we shouldn't be surprised. And we can note that Elisha here is welcoming in an era of prophetic leadership. The king of northern Israel, the kingship, has failed. 
So as Elijah walks out, Elisha ushers in a new era where the prophets are going to lead God's people and they're just going to ignore the kings. So the northern kingdom's coming under judgment at this point, and the seeds of a new era are popping up with the northern kingdom, the prophetic era, where all these prophets start popping up and doing their thing. Jesus opens a new era with the church with the exact same sequencing of events, or very similar to it. So in the case of the judgment of northern kingdom of Israel, that's coming very soon. In the case of Jesus, the judgment is coming very soon. And that, so there is judgment coming. With Jesus, it's been 2,000 years. With the northern kingdom, it won't be that long. Judgment comes a lot quicker for them. Jesus tells us we should be ready at any moment for that to happen. And the blessings in both cases go out to the Gentiles. The sons of the prophets are there. We got this person coming from this clearly Gentile-named town, some guy from some Gentile-named town. The blessing goes out and pours out on Gentiles in both cases. So we get images of a new era in both cases. When we see these kinds of miracles, that should cue off a good Jewish person. Oh, there's a new era of God's covenant with humanity beginning at this point. So when Jesus starts doing this stuff, the good Jewish people are like, oh yeah, we're about to enter into a new covenant. And they should be listening to Jesus saying, okay, what's the new relationship and how are we going to interact with God now? Then chapter 5 starts with the word now. It's the same narrative here. Now Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria. Remember when Elijah was in the wilderness and God told him to go back and anoint a new northern kingdom king and he was told to anoint a new king in Syria and he was told to go find Elisha and pick up a new buddy? Those were the three things that God told Elijah to do as he left the wilderness. So we can assume that even though Syria has been at war with the northern kingdom, they've also had relationships with God's prophets. So it's interesting here that you got Naaman, the commander of the army the king, of the king of Syria, kind of a second in command, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. And the Lord there is not just any old Lord, it's Yahweh. So this is a guy who seems to respect Yahweh from a foreign Gentile kingdom. That's interesting. He also was a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Wow, this is really confused. Mighty man of valor, that's a pretty rare title in the Old Testament. David got that title, right? I think Gideon had that title. Very few people have the title, a mighty man of valor. It's pretty rare. But it says something about his character. He was a good man. He was a decent man. He treated people with respect and dignity. He had honor and justice on his mind. But the idea of leprosy is, but he also had sin. It doesn't matter how good you are if you still got this plague of leprosy attached to you. And the, sin, and the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive, a young girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. This is interesting. Some nameless little girl is going to have an influence on the doings of nations. She could, as a prisoner of war and as a slave, she could just bemoan her situation and, oh, woe is me, I'm a slave to a Syrian. But she uses this as an opportunity to share the love of Jesus with her captor. And she uses her hardship to actually bless people. This is, don't miss the role that this little girl has in this situation. Horrible tragedy in her life, she's turned it into something pretty cool. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. I just, I know a man of God that can fix this. You need to go see him. 
That's all she has to say. That's her entire ministry, and it works. And Naaman went in and told his master, the king, saying, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. I got this girl living in my house. She says there's a guy that can cure me. I'd like to go, I'd like to take a leave, boss, and get a vacation time, and I'd like to go down to Israel and see this. Now, Syria and Israel have been at war. So the commander of the army just taking a road trip down to his enemy nation, this takes a little bit of courage to do this. It's not the kind of thing that you say to somebody um, who you don't trust. Like, there's some belief in this guy, and God's going to bless that. It also, for this girl to say this to his wife, that's not the kind of thing you say to a harsh boss. Like, if you got a harsh boss and they're walking into a pitfall, you kind of let them walk into the pitfall and laugh when it happens. But this girl actually, like, there's some kind of affection here, which makes sense because in verse 1, this was an honorable family. Just because they had an employee doesn't mean they treat them horrible. So the girl actually has some affection for this family and says, I know how this healing can happen if you go this direction. So God sees, I think, the word and calls honor, honor in the Bible. We can see that there are people that haven't been given the law that God still sees as honorable because they live that way. This is like Romans chapter 1. So part of this is, well, how can God see somebody as honorable that isn't living according to the Old Testament law? In part because God's really, really smart, right? And he is just, and he's good. The Syrians aren't following the Old Testament law. They haven't been given the responsibility to keep that or to bring it before the world. But God still sees what a good person looks like. And God is drawing that person through the leprosy to come into his own. And at the end of the story, this guy's going to go off praising Yahweh. So God's directly bringing this person into the kingdom. Kind of an image of what God's going to do for all of us. Only that this is the only <laughs> Gentile in the entire Bible that's given the title of honor. Right? It's pretty cool. And that's kind of the point here. So the girl uses the captivity to tell Naaman about the man of God. You want healing? Go here. He's got leprosy. So we have a Gentile with an incurable condition which sentences them to death. And then there's a solution if you just go meet the man of God. Sounds like evangelism to me. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of this leprosy. It's like a letter of reference that they would use in the ancient world. Basically, don't kill this guy like he's on a diplomatic mission from Alderaan. And so it's used as protection. That letter would be an official business kind of scroll. And so he brings it to the king of Israel, who's not mentioned by name again, right? So we just got whoever is pretending to be king. Ten talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, by today's dollar is about $1.3 million. So he's bringing a king's ransom to a king, saying, I'd really like to get rid of this leprosy, please, if you could do it. The problem is money isn't what cures them. This is an important thing. It's not about the money. You can't pay for God's blessing. There's nothing you can do to get God's blessing. And it happened, verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? What a great sentence. Even though he's outside the, the will of God, what comes out of his mouth is so perfect. No, humans can't kill and make alive. When somebody's raised from the dead, that's the power of an almighty God. It's not a human anymore. 
that's very important when God, when Jesus shows up and starts raising from people from the dead in his own name, right? No, you're not God. You can't kill and make alive. That this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? No, only God cures leprosy. This is why it's so important that the Old Testament establishes that point because Jesus shows up and starts healing lepers, Think of what the Jewish people, the buzz that would start going around. Wait a second. Jesus just healed leprosy. Who, nobody kills leprosy except for God himself. And part of where we get that belief system is from these verses. Nope, you're right. Nobody cures leprosy but God himself. Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. The king of Israel thinks that Syria is trying to pick a fight by making an unmeetable demand. You heal this person or else. So he thinks it's a threat. It's just kind of sad. So um, he's getting another notice. That's the other thing. I think God's still giving the northern king of Israel another chance to see that he's, God's still doing his work, even kind of doing a roundabout. Because it's interesting that Naaman goes first to the king before he goes to Elisha. And part of that is I, probably the assumption by the Syrians that if you've got a man in your kingdom that can cure leprosy, probably at the king's court, right? Probably at the king's command. But the fact that Elisha is out in the, you know, Mount Carmel or wherever he's hanging out at the moment, and he's not at the king's court, that's a striking thing from the outside world. Like, oh my goodness, what kind of foolish king doesn't have these kinds of people at court? So it was, verse 8, when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Again, just another little warning for the king. Like, this isn't about you, buddy. This guy came to see me. Even if you can't be the king that God wants, at least don't hinder the work of God that he's doing. Don't get in the way, Jeroboam or Jeroam. So why have you torn your clothes? It's kind of a rhetorical question. Why are you grieving? You're the one that separated yourself from God. God didn't separate himself from you. And God's work doesn't stop just because you don't like him. So Naaman may be thinking to himself, you know, what do I got to do to get around this idiot king? <laughs> Which this does bring dishonor to the king because he doesn't understand where real honor belongs. Verse 9, Then Naaman went to his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. So, and now we're at his house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. I like this. You got a, a whole entourage with millions of dollars as part of it, and they're coming up with horses and chariots, and you hear the thunder coming up the road, the dust settles, and those chariots had to be beautiful. This is the commander of the army, right? This is the Rolls Royce of chariots pulling up. Elisha doesn't even bother to answer the door. Eh, doesn't matter to a man of God. I don't care what you're riding up on. So Elijah sends a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. Only God cures leprosy. Elijah doesn't get in the way. We've seen this a few times with Elijah. If there's a God in heaven, God will do the healing. So by removing himself from the situation, Elijah's keeping that foreshadowing intact. He's not going to act like he did the healing or even get close to the event if he can help it. That way, there's no mistaking that God did the healing, not Elisha. Because you would say, well, hey, Elisha's healing leprosy. So every way possible, Elijah removes himself from that. Because the one that heals leprosy is the Messiah. It's God himself. And so the image has to stay kind of there. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Seven's the number of? 
divine sneezing. Right? This is God's plan. That's the number seven. God, this is the perfect plan of God. The perfect cleansing is that Jordan River thing. A Jordan River. Who, who, who did cleansing in the Jordan River? Oh, yeah, it was John the Baptist, right? So this is a key location, key imagery. I love as we head into the prophets that all this stuff starts to tie together. So Elijah doesn't even come out. That would be seen as impolite, but it's important that he doesn't come out. For Naaman to be healed, he has to be humbled. He has to know that God did it, and the washing in the water has nothing to do with it. It's just an image. It's a divine image. So he's thinking to himself, like the bat, if you've seen the Jordan River, it's a muddy, nasty river. So people are like, I'm going to go to Israel, and I want to get baptized in the Jordan River. And I'm always like, are you sure? You know, they got nicer springs. There's better places in there, and that's his reaction. Naaman became furious in verse 11. He went away and said, indeed, like he's indignant, right? I said to myself, he'll surely come out to me. So he's offended that Elisha doesn't come out to him and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, and wave his hand all over the place, over the place, and heal the leprosy. I thought this, like all these religious people, they come out with all their pomp and circumstance. I thought there'd be a little dance and they'd do some incantations and that's how these religious people work. Naaman comes out and this guy didn't even come out to meet me? You gotta be kidding. I got money to pay him. He doesn't want my money. Like this, I'm I'm not impressive to him. So because Elisha doesn't treat him like he thinks he should be taught, Naaman doesn't think there's power in Elisha. Ever meet somebody that comes to the church and they expect a song and dance and then they don't get it and they're upset by that? Who are these people? They're just simple and basic and normal. I thought there would be stuff, you know, incense and sparklers, stuff like that. Are we not, are not the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I got rivers back home I could go to. Just really take a bath? That's what this guy's telling me to do? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He's thinking that Elisha won't see him because he's not clean enough. Ever meet people that won't come to church because they don't feel like they're perfect enough? They're too sullied with sin that they can't come and hear God's word? Nonsense. That's not, it's not about taking a bath. It's about humbling himself to do what God told him to do. The very simple act of going in the water and doing it seven times. You get in the water, you dunk yourself, you get out, and you're counting to... Like, that sounds silly, almost, and just ridiculous. But he's mistakenly thinking that the washing is about a physical thing that Elisha wants him so clean, that the waving of the hand, he thinks Elisha does the healing. But God does the healing, not Elisha. That's an important point. His reaction says more about his expectation and his pride, and it's typical of unbelievers. It's absolutely typical of unbelievers. Defy that expectation by not pretending that you're better than other people are. You know, Defy that expectation by pointing people to the simple, not the ornate. The, the Abana and the Farfar are cleaner rivers than the Jordan. So he's right about that. They're much nicer rivers. But the idea that he's supposed to humble himself, take off his armor, get down to his loincloth, hop in the water and clean off. With leprosy, he's probably embarrassed by what he looks like. I don't know about you guys, but, but as I started that vote, I don't like taking going to the pool with people because you start to get self-conscious when you get fat. 
right? That's just a thing. He's worse than fat. He's got leprosy all over him. He doesn't want to get naked before his men and jump in that river. You want me to humble myself? Anything but that. Why don't you wave your hand and say an incantation or something? But having me get in the Jordan River and do it seven times, I don't want to do that. I kind of resonate with Naaman. But then verse 13, his servants came near and spoke to him. And he said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the river. This is really cool. He's an honorable man. Remember that point? His servants come up to him and notice two things about this. One, he's willing to listen to his servants. So he does humble himself. Notice that his servants call him my father. He's a good enough boss to where there's affection for him because he's a good man. So part of what brings him closer to this healing is the fact that he's a good and decent person. It is the fact that he's acted in such a way that he can actually heal, hear people that are lesser than him. The pride is an issue with Elijah, but the pride isn't a persistent thing in his life. And then in verse 14, an immediate switch, so he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan. He doesn't even go back to Elijah. He just does what he's told. So the humility was hard to come by, but like an egg, when you crack the shell, the inside was gooey. This guy was ready for the kingdom of God. He was ready to do what God told him to do. He just needed somebody to encourage him. So he went down, dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, not according to the man of God, but the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little baby child. And he was clean, smooth like a baby's bottom. He comes out, the leprosy's gone, and it's washed off. Boy, if God wanted some mighty work to happen here, this doesn't feel very special. It feels like he just washed off the leprosy. Super easy. This doom unto death leprosy, and I've gone through the gore of leprosy before. It's a nasty disease. But literally, it comes off very simply. God demands so simple a task of us. Humble ourselves get baptized. It's, that shouldn't push us away from God because it's not extravagant enough. That should draw us to God because it's simple enough even we can handle this. Acts 2.36, Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He doesn't say that after that, then you get spiritual battle and warfare. But it's so simple. You want to join the kingdom of God? Repent, be baptized. You want to get rid of your leprosy, that condition of sin that we all have? Repent, be baptized. It's not hard. There's nothing difficult. And I think for some people, that is the difficulty. They wish it was more ornate. So they create cathedrals and holy water and relics and ritual and ornate religious practices because they feel like it should be something bigger, something human-made. But when God does something, it, it, it deals with us at a simple human level. Repent and be baptized. Super easy. And when Naaman got past this, the sin is forgiven. The leprosy is gone. God says repent, and he does. His, his very simple friends say, maybe you should just do what this guy says. Try it. You might like it. Right? It's like Mikey with his life cereal, right? Why don't you just try it? So a Christian can hide sin from the church for decades, but you can't hide sin from God for a day. And I think this is part of it. We got people that grew up in the church, but they harbor sin in their lives. They're not repenting, and they're not really baptized in the Holy Spirit. So they know all the right answers to say. They can think it in their head, but their hearts aren't going anywhere. 
That's a terrifying state to be in, but it's super simple. Repent, be baptized. Restored like the flesh of a little child. Let me read something from the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that they might grow thereby. The point of having the skin like a child is now that child can grow up. Repenting and being baptized is just the beginning of the journey. And frankly, it's probably the hardest part. Being a kid that doesn't know how to walk, that's tough. Being a little toddler that figures out how to run a little bit, that's awesome. Being a teenager that can do Olympics, even better. The journey of the spiritual walk is probably at its most difficult at the beginning of the journey, when you're just figuring out how to walk. That's when Satan's going to go after you. It's when you're a little baby in the Word. When you grow up and mature in the Word, you become a threat to the enemy because suddenly you start winning those battles. But there's a season, I think for a lot of people, it's two, three years. Right after saying, I give my life to the Lord, you've got major spiritual struggles in front of you. And that's where you, you know, you feel grateful. You feel grateful for the purity and the cleansing. And then you've got to kind of figure out what to do with it. It's stunning how people can call on God and then go right back to their old sins. It's devastating to the spiritual walk. You stay like a baby when you do that. Imagine this guy gets out of the river with his leprosy and instead of going to say thank you to Elijah and, and basically thank you to Yahweh, he just starts looking around for how he can get leprosy again, right? Maybe he liked having leprosy a little bit, kept his you know, people away from him. He had some private time. Get all cleaned up. He doesn't, it doesn't say he goes and starts rolling in the dirt and hugging people with leprosy. He's thankful for the purity that he gets. The word dipped there in the Hebrew is tabal. It means to plunge. The dipped, I think of like what you do with a cookie in the milk, right? You're just dipping like your toes in the water. That's not the word that's being used here. It's complete immersion. He is, he is throwing himself completely in the water. The word means to plunge or immerse. It's more like when you hit the little target on a dunk tank at the fair, and that person goes and gets dipped tabal in the water. So this is full immersion. So the idea that he does this seven times shows his complete obedience, sets aside his pride, does the very simple thing he's asked to do, and then verse 15. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and they came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know there's no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift for your servant. He doesn't give the credit to Elijah. He gives the credit to God. And part of that is Elijah had nothing to do with it. He hasn't even met Elijah yet. Like, they're not even close. So he doesn't even know what the guy looks like. But he said, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. So he's meeting Elisha at this point. Elisha's like, I don't want anything from you. The gift of God is free. You can't do anything to earn it. And if I take that money for you, it destroys the foreshadowing that God's trying to do for Jesus. Actually, I don't think he would have said that, but in obedience to God, God said, don't take anything from this guy. It doesn't mean that it's right or wrong to give gifts to the people of God. Like, I is, we're supposed to be generous, but in this situation, Elisha was told not to take a gift because that would mess up this guy's faith because he's just going to think you're another one of these shysters. So sometimes, I, and I think this is really cool, sometimes when people come and they want to give a bunch of money, it's really cool when God's people say, we don't need your money, we want your heart. Your money's your crutch. We want none of that from you. And I think that some, somebody comes in and they're, oh, I'm such a big deal. You need me to be a big deal. If you come in, then your, your body, you got a big deal as money. It's like, we don't want your big deal. We want your heart. We want your humility. 
We want your poverty. We want those things that God has given you that are of the Spirit, not the things that you've acquired in the world. And he says, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Please take it. I got millions. I got $1.3 million worth of stuff. Please take something. No, I don't want any of it. You don't understand. It's all free. So Naaman said, that if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but only to the Lord Yahweh himself. He's going to go back to Syria, second in command of the kingdom, loving the Lord God Almighty. Hey, what happened to your leprosy? Yahweh took it away. And the earth is an interesting thing. The reason he wants the earth is there was a belief in the ancient world that gods were attached to land or territory, that Yahweh was the God of Israel. So if he takes dirt from Israel and brings it back to Syria, then he can do his offerings on Israeli soil. The Bible never supports this idea, and Elisha doesn't really poo-poo it, but he also doesn't like support it and say, yes, it's very important you do this on that soil. Um, but he wants that soil for that reason, and he wants to take it. So, yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there. And he leans on my hand. I bow down in the temple of Rimmon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. I think this is really cool. I'm going to go back to Syria, and the king goes in, and he bows down to Rimmon. And when he does that, he's leaning on my arm, so i got to take a knee to go down with him. Think of the reverence this guy has for God. Like This is reverence we don't see today in the church. I have to go into a place that's not of Yahweh and I have to do something for my job that may appear to be a compromise, but I want you to know my heart's still with Yahweh. And of course, on that point, he says, then he said to him, go in peace, have peace in your heart, don't worry about it. So he departed from him for a short distance and we'll come back to Gehazi in a sec. I just love that idea that he so respects and reveres God Almighty he doesn't want to do anything that it's, it's against God's word. And God's word says, don't bow to other idols. But it's talking about our heart. So when he goes in to serve as king and be a good employee, that's not the same thing as giving your heart over to what that person is doing. He's not breaking the law of God by entering a foreign temple. Like if you go on vacation and there's like a tourist thing and you can go tour a temple or something, go ahead and do it. But what you're going to see is a dead spiritual place. But that doesn't mean you're like, somehow breaking God's law by walking into that place, right? The spirit that God wants is in your heart. It's not the physical space we, we, we take up. That said, if you're going to the temple because you like the parties there, that says you're going there because of your heart. You're not going as a tourist. You're going as a, a resident, um, what do you call that person? A native, right? A resident believer? I don't know what the word is. It's late. Really, this should end the story. Go in peace. That should be the end of the story. But we got one more little piece of foreshadowing here, which is kind of cool. Gehazi doesn't know it. He's just a little greedy dude. But he's actually playing into this image of, of the church age. And he's playing into this foreshadowing. God's going to use it to give us an image we can learn from. So in the same way that God guides Elisha and Naaman, and there's salvation there that God's kingdom isn't about taking... God's going to use this next part to give us a picture of legalism and obligation in the church. So take note of this, verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. 
but as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Basically, he's a greedy dude, right? What are you doing letting all that money walk away? What are you, nuts? It's like if somebody came up to us and said, hey, we want to buy you guys a building, right? And we prayed about it, and we're like, no, we're good in the coffee shop. And people might think, what are you people nuts? Why wouldn't you do that? So you can't just give away God's blessing for free. And the answer is, yeah, we can. We didn't earn it. We can give it away without asking people for anything. It's easy to rationalize adding to God's retirements. And that's what Gehazi's doing here. He's adding to what God's telling Elisha to do. And he's doing it independently, not with a group of people. Right? So he's just going off on his own. He's going to strike out on his own and do something that's actually really condemning to him. Right? He thinks he knows the right thing to do. God wanted to freely give to Naaman. It was all worked out. They left in peace. It was all good. But he's going to go take up his own little cause here. He's going to do something apart from what the people of God are supposed to be doing. Elisha deserves a blessing. You can see how logic that is. And Elisha just cured this leprosy. He deserves something. That's the human logic. Um, Naaman wanted to give. So he's just helping Naaman be participating in the ministry. You're going to partner with us in the ministry. But it's not okay to take when that God said not to take from that person. So he says this, look, my master has spared Naaman from Syrian. I'd say there's three lies in his thinking. Lie number one is calling Elisha, his master, when he's being disobedient. When you're disobedient, that's not your master anymore. When God tells you to do something and you don't do it, then he's not really your master. Don't pretend that he is. Don't lie to yourself or to anybody else. God spared Naaman um, and, and did it this kind of way, and Elijah just told him to take a bath when he did it. So this lie is a lie of self-promotion or human elevation, making the messenger the master. He's calling Elisha the master, but Elisha's just the messenger. It's just a servant of God. Who's the master that healed Naaman? God is. So it's this idea, the first lie is one of just elevating humanity beyond their point. Then you get to the next one. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him, a sign of humility. And he said, is all well? There's that question again. And he said, all is well. My master, but not all is well. He's disturbed. He's lying again. It's not that everything's well. Gehazi has an agenda. But you can see that people in the name of God say they're doing godly things, but they're not. They're doing their own thing. And I think we need to be wary of this kind of stuff. My master sent me saying, indeed, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets had come for me in the mountains of Ephraim. Big lie. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garment. He's, he's rationalized to himself. It's just a modest gift, not a big one. So Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him, bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants and they carried them on ahead of him. When you find people with a lot of wealth and believers, we get in our head, well, that wealth should be part of the work of God. Not unless God says so. We don't. We don't need wealth. God's not a beggar. He's, God's not broke. God has resources to do the ministry that God wants to do. But I could see the logic of Gehazi here, right? In the flesh, it's like, man, what's it hurt to take a little bit, make our life a little easier? But to do it, he has to lie. First, he lies about who the master is. Then he lies about these two people showing up. He lies about things being all is well, he says. And so it, he's just getting further and further into this place where God says, thou shalt not lie. 
yet he's breaking one of the commandments thinking he's doing good. Gehazi's taking advantage of a good-hearted, blessed new believer, and that is absolutely evil. But he justifies it because he thinks to himself, I'm serving the kingdom right now. But what he's doing is he's pushing people away. So in giving, it reduces the blessing of God to an earthly commerce. By Gehazi making this trade with Naaman, the blessing that God wanted to give to Naaman is somehow now an exchange. And God didn't want it that way. God wanted Naaman to be a debtor to him. In God's kingdom, we give freely. We don't give with obligation. We've never passed a plate around here. We got a box. People want to give to the ministry and and God's leading you to do it. There's the box. But we never do the thing where we shake the plate in front of your face because God doesn't need your money that bad. If you need to just come and be blessed and you need the money to pay your bills, pay your bills. Like, we'll get by. There's a point at which there's, God's got people here that it's on their heart to be regular givers and to tithe. Some of you go to other churches on Sunday and you're giving your tithe there. Amen to that. Do that and feel no guilt about it. And never let someone come around you independently asking you for money, right? Because if we got people that need money, we'll give the body. We've always shown up for people to provide for them. And I think it's amazing how that works. But don't let individuals like Gehazi work from within the church to basically be going around with their hand out asking for resources. It's a really dangerous situation. And we try to be really cautious with that, right? If we got people that have something on their heart and they want to do it, we share with the whole group, the sons of the prophets all get together. Hey, here's the thing. If people are led to donate to it, donate to it. And then we let that person have those resources and go off and serve the kingdom. So when people give, we make sure that goes out to serve the kingdom. The lie number two is that Elisha sent him to do this. So he's claiming the authority of Elisha and has no authority on his own. It's the source lie, really. Who's sending you? Well, God's sending me. Is God sending you? Is Elisha sending you? Or are you sending yourself? And that's a thing that I think everyone has to consider when you're doing any kind of missionary evangelistic work that requires resources. Did God really send you to do that? When he came to the citadel, he took for them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Uh, read this is that he hid the money, so now he's got to keep secrets from Elijah. Uh, we know from the Bible this never works, right? Does God, if God can pick through the entire nation of Israel which person took from the conquered army and single them out, tribe, family, and get down to that one person, then he can spot Gehazi. So then he let the men go, and they departed. The servants had to carry the money. It was that much. Now he went in and stood before his master, Elisha, and said to him, and Elisha said to him, where did you go, Gehazi? This is a question like God asked Adam and Eve. You know, where where are you at? When Cain and Abel were there, he goes to, you know, Cain and says, hey, where's your brother? And it's not because God doesn't know. I don't think it's because Elisha doesn't know what's happening here. He's asking to give this person a chance to confess and repent. The question's for their benefit, right? So, hey, where'd you go, Gehazi? And he says, your servant didn't go anywhere. Well, there's another lie. Yes, he did. So you see how the lies build up really quick? And all this started with him going, well, I just wanted, this is good for the ministry. God wants this. Surely God wants a little piece of this money. So this greed turns into lie after lie after lie, and it just gets worse and worse. Instead of getting better, this person's hiding things now. 
And you'll, you'll notice when you identify people like this, asking these open questions like, well, why are you doing that? What did you do this for? They've either got a billion excuses or they flat out lie. And that's when you know you're dealing with somebody like Gehazi, right? And God, here's the thing with Gehazi, of the sons of the prophet, the one who's serving Elisha, like in the same way that Elisha was promoted after Elijah, Gehazi was next in line, right? So if it's about, you know, being in charge of the ministry, this guy was in pole position. But instead of being raised up the way God wants him to be raised up, he's just getting caught in these lies. I think it's spinning out of control because now he's lying to Elisha's face. It's a direct lie, right? Not a lie of elevation or a, a lie of source, but a lie of just straight out telling untruths. Presumption, legalism, this is the way it should be. I'm going to presume that I know what God wants next. Those sins quickly lead to this kind of spiral, this kind of thing. And simple questions like, where did you go, Gehazi, can no longer be answer answered with simple questions. So suddenly you're hiding things. You got this whole persona. Like, I'll give you a few simple questions that are really good to ask to your friends and family when they're in this spiral. Ask questions like, hey, did you pray about that? See how easily or simply they can answer that question. Well, yeah, of course I prayed about that five times. Or did God tell you to do that? Mm, well, what do you mean by that? When God tells you things, you know it. It's a really simple question. Um, or even questions like, what did you do? Why did you do that? And they should be able to answer that question simply, but when somebody's kind of lost in this presumption cycle, they got to come up with what they think you want them to hear. And then it gets, it, it, it's not humorous, it's really sad, but they get lost in this spiral where they're starting to contradict themselves on a, on a regular basis. That's where we're at with Gehazi, verse 26. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Elisha knew exactly what happened. Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Elisha expands and exaggerates because this is what was in Gehazi's heart. He wanted resources and land and provision. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. The people of God that should have been keeping God's word actually get in the way of God's word, and the curse goes on them. This is a huge image of what happens with the Pharisees. The very leaders that should have been celebrating Messiah don't, and Jesus walks out of those synagogues, and the curse goes upon them. That sin goes to anybody that doesn't accept Jesus. So there is this image that you got the Gentiles accepting Jesus and they're washed clean, but you've got other people that should know better, that have been trained, that don't go wash in the river, they don't get baptized in the name of Jesus, and they don't have a path to purity anymore because God's got a different covenant with people. Did my heart not go with you? The Israelite here doesn't get it. The Gentile does. Gehazi is essentially not ready for leadership in God's new covenant. He's not pure for ministry. His heart wants stuff instead of wanting God. I want to read this from Titus 1. We were talking about leadership qualifications before. I think this is really important in the body. We know what a Christian leader should look like. And I hate to read this because people are going to be like, no, Sean, you're not that, you're not that. So have some mercy with me here. But for a bishop, they must be blameless. 
Like, if anybody in the room has something they can blame that person for, they shouldn't be in leadership in the church. There's something there. As a steward of God, they're not self-willed. They're not quick-tempered. They're not given to wine. They're not violent. They're not greedy for money. That's a Gehazi issue, right? But they're hospitable. That's a Gehazi issue. A lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, another Gehazi is. You see how he doesn't fit the profile really quick? Holding fast the faithful word as he's been taught that he might be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those that contradict. They got to know the word and they got to be able to teach the word and they got to be able to use the word to correct and guide people. Gehazi not only is not learning from Elisha, he's not able to carry it out and he can't control himself. He's not ready for leadership. And I would say yet, because the disciples do a lot of the same stuff, and Jesus prepares them over time. At this point, Gehazi might have served Elisha for a long time faithfully, but his heart is still greedy. It hasn't gone from his head to his heart. He knows all the right answers, but he doesn't act the right way. That's a really tough spot. He ruins an amazing opportunity to be serving God and a servant girl in Syria takes the job that he should have had and blesses this whole situation. Don't interrupt the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't get in the way of it. At the very least, work with Elisha. Work with the people of God and the sons of prophet in such a way that you're honoring God. Mark 3.29 But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to internal leprosy. I mean, internal condemnation. Same thing. Right? You want to disregard or not do what the Holy Spirit's having the body do at that time? That's great. You want to presume and go solo on things? That's dangerous. Right? And this isn't like an argument for like everybody needs to think the same. He could have gone to Elisha and said, Elisha, why don't we get any money from this guy? And Elisha could have given him his talks and say, hey, God told me this. Or if that's what God's telling you, or Elisha could have just been, eh, I thought we were good, but yeah, if you want to go get some money, you can. He never went to Elijah. There was never a conversation. He just presumed on his own. Therefore, the leprosy left of Naaman shall cling. This is where we get the association of leprosy and sin. It was Gehazi's sin spiritually that gave him the leprosy physically, and the two things go together. God gives and takes away leprosy, gives and takes away death, he gives and takes away spiritual life, and he does it to the degree to which we obey. So God allows Gehazi, note here, it never says anything about the money going back to Naaman. God allows him to keep the money, and he's going to live the rest of his leprous life thinking this money was worthless. I had so much better in the kingdom than I do outside the kingdom. Having leprosy would make it so Gehazi is sent out of the camp because that's the Old Testament law. He can't live with everybody else anymore. And that's in part to not have leprosy be contagious. Spiritually speaking, he's not with the sons of the prophets anymore. He's cast out. That idea of faith in God versus faith in yourself, two totally different plans and two totally different outcomes. Path to purity in Christ is through Jesus Christ. He's only one that covers sin and covers the price tag of sin. That's the only way through it. And I think for believers, we might know all that in our head, but if we don't believe it in our heart, it's torturous. It's horrid. But the idea is to let go and let God. We wash ourselves with divine perfection in Christ so that we have hearts like a child. We stop trying to do it ourselves. 
We trust in the Father in heaven to do it the way we should do it. Or we presume to know how to do everything, and you have to deal with leprosy. And you're covered with that. So, chapter 5. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these foreshadowings uh, of the ministry of Jesus. And we just thank you for the blessing that we have in those things. And we thank you for the gift that you've given us. Lord, I just pray that as we learn tonight and you see just the beautiful faith of Naaman contrasted with the faithlessness of Gehazi, Lord, I pray that each person in this room makes a resolution of themselves to serve you. Lord, not that they, we all agree with each other and frankly, we, we need to test everything against the word of God. Um, but Lord, help us to live according to what we read in the word and to do the very simple things you've asked us to do, to be gracious and kind and sober-minded, um, just and fair, patient with each other, to be good-natured, Lord, to be jovial and kind. Lord, we look at those attributes that you've laid out for us to be, Lord, and we want to be more like Naaman, honorable and good, to have servants that, that love working with us, Lord, to have bosses that regard us as great workers. We want to be more like Naaman in this story. Lord, help us to get the selfishness out of our heart, the self-benefit in everything about being about us. Lord, help us to just stop thinking about ourselves so much. Lord, because it leads to destruction. And we just pray, Lord, that you can kill that in us. Help us to love you more than we love ourselves. Lord, to give our life so that we can gain it. And Lord, we give it to you. There's nothing that we do or we say that's worth anything. The only things we have that are redeemable are what you do through us. So Lord, please use our lives. Use them as yours for whatever they're worth, Lord. Take them and make them yours. And Lord, if it's unto death, we're happy to go there in your name. If it's unto life and, and great ministry and successes, Lord, may it be that. So whatever it looks like, Lord, help us to dig ditches, to gather vessels, to pour the oil. We just want to be part of that. We want to be part of what you're doing. Lord, help us to humble ourselves to the simple requests that you've made of us before we presume anything else. Lord, help us to not have our eyes on the $1.3 million, but help us to have our eyes on you. Lord, help us to do that as a community of people. Lord, help us to do it individually and help us to encourage the godly people in our lives outside of this Bible study to also be that way. Lord, help us to just be a blessing. In your name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.